Oh, so who am I talking with? So uh, you're talking to Dom Knowles. Um, I'm a poet and a grad student over at Brandeis uh, by Boston. Yeah, and so like, what have you been studying up in grad school? So a lot of it has been like trying to fight my way through um, like the liberal academy being like a Marxist, um, especially like a Marxist that does poetry since so much Marxism involves like novel, you know, theory and narrative theory and stuff. Um, but basically what I've been trying to look at is just um, the kind of dual histories of poetry and communism. And uh, uh, specifically, you know, with uh, in the American poetry tradition um, and just sort of trying to come up with like a materialist account of, um, you know, I guess like technically speaking, uh, I'm a modernist, uh, but it's sort of a useless term now, which I can get into why it's useless, you know, later. Um, but uh, sort of just trying to kind of screw with the divide between, you know, so-called modernist poetry and proletarian literature and things like that, uh, which I guess is like a couched version of, uh, you know, just being angry with the Academy all the time anyway. Yeah, well, how'd you like get into this kind of topic? Um, well, so I guess in my own life, uh, I grew up in like a really terrible, like rich neighborhood, uh, but I was not rich. Um, so like having like a tiny little house um, with uh, two parents who didn't graduate college and stuff being surrounded by McMansions and like just the shittiest, whitest pieces of shit uh, on the planet um, uh, kind of points you in the direction of like wanting to change your material conditions. Uh, but then I got into poetry in, in high school. I wrote this terrible a chat book um, for a girl that I was dating um, who did the art for it, which was kind of embarrassing, but I got out of a bunch of classes my senior year for it, uh, so it was worth it. Um, uh, and then I sort of knew that I wanted to study literature uh, when I got to college, um, but I was also playing music at the same time, um and i was like a music major and stuff for a while but then the sort of i i met a maoist um on my college campus and he sort of showed me something beyond like the kind of sjw type stuff um uh and like you know move beyond liberalism and whatnot um and so he also wrote poetry and i wrote poetry so he started getting into me he, he started getting me into some uh you know, more interesting, more sort of uh, like boundary pushing stuff. Um, and then, you know, being involved with campus politics and stuff and just seeing how like horrible um, the administrations are at these schools uh, and how they just sort of push people down um, and keep, you know, adjuncts, you know, like dangling constantly and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's how I came to like like you know literature and marxism at the same time um yeah right so do you, are you teaching now at um brandeis yeah so i'm teaching um i've taught uh full classes full um full comp classes for two semesters now um and uh it's basically this sort of weird thing where they have um 
sort of a preset kind of mold where you have to teach a certain kind of um, uh, like paper and like argument style, um, like three different ones. One's like close reading. One is like lens, which is like basically like theoretical stuff. And then one is like a research thing. Uh, but within that, uh, you can pretty much create whatever you want as far as like reading material is concerned. So um, I've been teaching a course on protest literature. Um, and then in the spring, I'm going to be teaching a course on the prison. Um, so that's what, and it's, it's all first year stuff. So it's right at the time where they're sort of getting into what college is. So it's a nice time to kind of radicalize them or try to. Yeah, that's definitely a nice time to try and radicalize someone, I think, especially yeah. coming into a, a school like that. Yeah, so like you mentioned, um, I guess, trying to, let me see, it was something like, uh, you may, oh, so you mentioned trying to like mess with the divide between the proletarian and modernist lit. So like, how does that kind of fit into the protest lit that you've been talking about? Because I feel like there probably is a connection there. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, so the the article that I wrote for Viewpoint um, sort of kind what, of... What, sorry, what was that article real quick? What was the name of it? Uh, a Spectre in Every Street. Uh, it's on George Oppen and um, the Communist Poetics. Yeah, go, go on. Sorry. <laughs> Just a um, quick plug. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> um so it it kind of starts out with drawing uh, a divide between you know say uh, McKay's you know a poem if we must die um, and then sort of George Oppen's like less explicitly political verse which was eventually kind of uh, kind of censured by 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 the Communist Party um, and I feel like. There's a bunch of things going on with that. Of course, like the the modernist, you know, critics who basically created the academy as we know it. Um, uh, the 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 new critical school were basically like uh, trying to defang and depoliticize um, the kind of modernist stuff. Um, that that we read, like Langston Hughes, for instance, is a really good like example of that. Like, not a lot of people know that he's a communist. Um, but the, the the divide between you know high modernist and proletarian stuff uh, sort of comes down to the idea of like political autonomy or commitment. Um, and uh, I feel like uh, lots of uh, people who study modernism now and study modernism when it was first being sort of canonized um, uh, were were very interested in depoliticizing the the kind of poetry that they were reading, you know, in order to establish it as modernist, um, and that sort of uh, made them ignore or uh, just sort of not take seriously a lot of the poems, like McKay's poems. Um, uh, because they were so politically committed that they were only good for like, you know, like an anthem um, or a sort of, you know, in like a protest kind of situation, uh, not like worthy of the study of like high literature. Um, so that's that's one of the the big things that I take issue with. And in in the article, um, 
I feel like I draw that line a little too hard. Um, and so rereading it now, um, though I kind of talk about it's sort of uh, more of an imagined uh, divide uh, than is a real one, I sort of want to get into that more and just sort of keep keep pulling it apart. Yeah, and I think a lot of like scholarly work now is probably is wrestling with that question. It seems to me. Do you think like there's a a lot of interest in this kind of topic in the academy right now? I mean, there's definitely a ton of interest coming up on like poetry and communism. There's you know that new um, book that's edited by Ruth Jennison and Julian Murphit called uh, "Communism and Poetry" or "Poetry and Communism," one of those uh, you know combinations, um, and um books like mark stevens book um red modernism yeah red modernism um is 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 really cool and it's cool to see people being interested in that um the the zukowski era by jenison uh, is another one um so those are sort of the things that i look to uh when i when i try to think about what i want my work to do but i will say that you know on the other hand these are like this is in the minority um like especially in modernist studies um the the move away from marxism and like theory in general has been like pretty significant um and it's sort of getting into this thing called new modernist studies which is basically came out around like the first little bits of it came out around like 1998 and then um an edited collection um, came out in like 2006, I think, that sort of lays out the terms of it. Um, and it's really sort of taking this like a historicist uh, version of globalization um, where, uh, you know, modernism can mean, you know, anything from the canonical, you know, period of like, you know, 1890 to 1945 to, um, you know, the old dynasties of China and things like that. And they just take, they, they redefine modernism from something that's associated with capitalism um, and the rise of, you know, the U.S. state and whatnot. Uh, and they sort of reapply it to, you know, any period where there is like a technological acceleration or there's some kind of, um, you know, rupture in an abstract sense. Um, and so I find that like really distracting uh, from what I think our like job is as scholars. Yeah, it sounds like the politics of that that sort of new modernism thing you're describing or something will be something like the same type of people who'd be trying to start they'd be trying to start academic fields in like, I don't know, something like progress studies or innovation studies. It kind of <laughs> sounds like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I guess... Hold on, let me just get a glass of water really quick. My mouth is cut dry. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it just seems like p politically flaccid, you know? Um, it, it seems like the kind of work that, like, you know, a dean could write um, or, like, some sort of, you know, uh, like a university president because it presumes that uh, you know, acceleration of like modes of production is like always good, and that um, to use the same kind of framework, the the interpretive framework of you know one canonical period can just be kind of reapplied 
to the past um, or theoretically to the future, but also, you know, all over the world. So, you know, there's, you know, now like, you know, Chinese modernism and Vietnamese modernism and, you know, a whole set of African modernisms. Um, and the same sort of questions and assumptions are being sort of laid over um, these these places with totally different histories um, and totally different, um, you know, uh, commitments politically. Uh, and I feel like it's sort of a kind of uh, like a critical imperialism to just kind of lay that stuff over without interrogating the, you know, the basis for for those assumptions in the first place. Right, I think this might be a good time to like maybe maybe you could describe George Oppen's work right now and how how it engaged with modernism and how maybe it can return us to like the specificity of that moment. Yeah, sure. I think I think that's a great um, place to go from here. So so Oppen um, was uh, like a later modernist. Um, so he came after you know Pound um, and was writing sort of contemporary. Contemporaneously uh, uh, with Williams and whatnot, uh, but generally he was reacting to um, the the poetic standards kind of created by Pound, and Pound was a very kind of uh, large figure in his life. They they were friends for a while till he went you know full fash, and then um, he sort of told him to fuck off, and that was that. Um, but uh, the the kind of modernism that uh, that Oppen sort of was born into was this kind of highly masculinist kind of like a futurist type of modernism um, that sort of valued these things uh, like acceleration and industry um, and and basically you know uh, the industrial rise of bourgeois society. Um, as uh, like artistic things to aspire to, kind of, um, uh, and you know, and Oppen, you know, as as a communist, kind of saw this, and uh, one, you know, saw the latent kind of gendered nature, you know, of it. Um, uh, but but two, sort of wanted to take the formal, you know, experiments. Um, that that made you know what Pound was doing interesting, and kind of repurpose it um, in this kind of uh, in a way that can like deconstruct that you know grand uh, uh, like narrative kind of meta narrative stuff about you know progress and futurism and and you know history. Um, uh, so. I feel like his reaction uh, to, you know, what Pound called a poem including history was to uh, sort of focus on these kind of minutia of, you know, materialism and like, um, you know, uh, like a movie signs and postcards and sort of imagist um, reconstructions of, you know, reality under capitalism rather than try to quote from you know capital uh for like 12 stanzas of a poem uh or something like that uh and i feel like that that's one of the really important things about objectivism as a as a project and a specifically marxist project is um you know it's kind of micro focus that 
retains a materialist bent and and maintains a kind of historical materialist bent uh, without kind of trying to capture everything all at once, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I was wondering too if maybe you could talk a bit about like that with like specific, specifically like with his work on discrete series, because I think a lot of what you're talking about is probably most apparent there with um, um, gender and I guess the the state of capitalism when he wrote it in 1929. Yeah, sure. Um, one sec, let me just pull it up. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah, sorry, that's a that's a kind of more specific question. I feel like, but <laughs> it's okay. Um. So, well, so for one thing, Pound wrote, you know, uh, the preface to to that volume, um, but it doesn't really seem like Pound understood what he was reading in this case. Um, he focuses on... Yeah, uh, well, I would say, too, just to interrupt real quick, it, it yeah, is, yeah. Oppen is, I think, quite subtle a lot of the time, and I could see why someone like Pound, a, a fascist, might just... It's very easy for him to read into it what he wants, I think. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I feel like he thought that, you know, Oppen needed to be masculinized, you know, in a way um, where, uh, you know, he, he sees the, the obscurity, which is the, the word that he uses in the preface, um, as this sort of, uh, like, masculinity lying in wait, like, like this kind of puberty of, of poetry. Um, and he sort of takes that paternalistic role, um, you know, with Oppen. Uh, um, like as if he he has to evolve um, and and grow into himself, you know, as like a male, you know, modernist poet who's in these groups with you know Pound and et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, right, and and I think Pound would feel like that with this book in particular because if it, it does follow a woman around as she through New York City, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it. I mean, it. It. It has these like i think about um uh what is it like the seventh poem in it uh, her ankles are watches yeah like that that poem is i mean it's so sparse first of all um and the the kind of movement of both the like you know woman's body in the poem and also the movement of the poem on the page itself um is is so gentle in this way. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think, um, like, a lot of the, I guess you could say, sparser poetry today really, I guess, doesn't read the way Oppen's poetry reads, which is, I think, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of the the sparser poetry today tries to um, condense the effect of a longer poem into a bunch of kind of short, very punctuated kind of statements um, that like kind of wax broad rather than narrow. Um, but I feel like just the moment, like the at the end of that poem, the quote, my hair scalp is like, it's doing so much uh, like relative to the kind of beautiful kind of feminized lines that came before it and sort of show this kind of bare kind of material reality of like what it means to have a body. Um, like in a way that would probably make someone like Pound, uh, you know, very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I mean, 
the discrete series, I think, is generally speaking, like very obsessed with material reality in a in a really interesting way. And I think that's why, like, you know, like a Marxist critic would be so drawn to it. Yeah, yeah. And it takes a lot of the um, the idea of a totality, you know, in relation to, you know, like, of course, the title, but um, of like what what it means to publish a book of poems that is like there's maybe like an average of like 15 words per page um and how like how much work the the reader has to do to engage in the totality of the poem and it's fragmented kind of sparse and very you know like materialist kind of state um that to, to me it sort of like invites like a dialectical relationship between the reader and the poem um, to sort of co-create that totality in a way that uh, I feel like a lot of modernists were were not interested in. They wanted to create the totality and present it, whereas Oppen seems to um, take a much more a reciprocal kind of view of it. Yeah, and I think that's something like uh, Matilda was talking about when we spoke on this podcast. And I guess there's yeah. something I, I've been trying to think about too, just like, how important um, the critic is in this in this whole endeavor of, I guess, left poetry. Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of critiques, you know, of Marxist criticism, as I'm sure you know, involve that, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, the critic is sort of revealing uh, some sort of, you know, secret, you know, dialectical meaning um, in the poem that puts him in a sort of you know, kind of a hierarchical relationship with the poem itself and that uh, the poem doesn't actually mean what it's supposed to mean until the critic has done his critical work and exposed that meaning. Um, and I don't think that that's true, but um, I just think that it's, it's, it's been a kind of criticism that has been launched a lot recently at, at Marxists. Yeah, and I, I guess one of, the, one of the things that, like, I thought about while reading your Viewpoints article was, like, it seems like one of the points you're trying to make is that like, rather than trying to bring Marxism into poetry, it's how to make poetry itself Marxist. And it feels like that's something Oppen really accomplished. And I would say all the objectivists were very good at. Oh yeah, I totally agree. I think, I think that's a really good reading of it. Um, uh, I mean, what, what I was thinking about when I wrote, that article was just, I mean, it just came out of like so much uh, a despair and frustration with like my own writing and also just seeing how fucking like useless poetry is in the world. Um, and uh, like Oppen sort of uh, seems to represent this kind of, yeah, as sort of like making Marxist of the poem. Um, and like, even if that means, you know, you stop writing and you go do something, that's like, you know, a continuous process, you know, to the poem. Uh, yeah, well, that, maybe you could say a bit about Oppen's career arc right here, like regarding, you know, discrete series and then what came after that. Sure, yeah. Um so Oppen uh, wrote his first book, came out in uh, 1934, um, and then 
soon as he got that published, um, I think it was self-published with uh, um, uh, two publishers, which he sort of ran with Zukovsky and whatnot. Um, and then he just was like, this is useless and stopped writing and, you know, became a member of the Communist Party. Uh, he gave uh, he g- gave and wrote speeches for the Utica milk strike and whatnot. Worked with the Popular Front, um, and generally, like you know, I mean, he didn't write for uh, tw- twenty five years, um, and like kind of during that time, he got under the the radar of the FBI, um, who's exiled out of Mexico, uh, where he still wasn't writing, or if he did write, he, he destroyed it. Um, even though he was living in kind of a community of artists, um, who were also exiled. Um, and in 1958, he, you know, started writing again. Um, and, uh, it's interesting because when he started writing again, he never stopped, even though there was like Vietnam and all these horrible things, uh, you know, that that occurred before his death in 1984. Um, uh, so the the kind of silence that that Oppen, you know, produced uh, by stopping writing poetry to go like do politics on the streets um, uh, has sort of become more of uh a thing that critics talk about than the poems themselves. Um, uh, yeah. So do you, do you want me to keep going with the, with the career stuff or. Oh yeah. You could totally keep going with it, but also we were talking, I guess about like why that, that silence is important with regards to like the kind of poetry and politics he practiced. So I guess we could maybe switch back to that. Yeah. Cool. Um, Just trying to think about what I want to say. Sorry. <laughs> oh, it's okay. You can take your time. I'll I can ramble for a sec too. It's like, um, so I guess <laughs> you know why why it's important is because there is oftentimes a sort of opposition that is made between poetry and actually doing organizing work, and. You know, and I think Oppen himself sometimes maybe flirted with that opposition. And in, in in the course of your viewpoints article, I think you're trying to maybe get at troubling that sort of uh, opposition between those two things. This is like sort of a tough question for me because I'm still working through it. Uh, yeah, in a lot is, of... <laughs> just to say, this is a really big question. To be fair, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like, I think about you know there's sort of this kind of speech act kind of function that a poem can directly, you know, intervene in, in politics like Claude McKay's, you know, if we must die, um, which like can and has been uh, read at literal political actions um, or like the little red Songbook by the wobblies and things like that, which are like meant to be, you know, actions uh, temporally, continuous with the actual politics uh being done and so to when i think about um a discrete series or even you know the 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 materials and you know of being numerous in the books that came after that um it's it's 
weird for me to think about it, though I think it's probably correct for me to think about those books as closer to something like McKay than something like um, Pound or closer to like the Ballads of Lenin by Hughes or something than, than um, you know, typical modernist stuff. And I'm not 100% sure why I think that. Um, uh, because cl clearly Oppen's poems do not, uh, they're not, uh, you know, rhythmic or, you know, things that you would kind of chant. Um, uh, but they seem to, they seem to have, they seem to be sort of the kind of poems that you read by yourself when you want to figure out what it's like to look at the world as a communist. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely, that definitely makes sense, sense to me. You know, the, like, especially, well, I, I think all his poems generally, but the, like the way he's observing the world, you know, like you, like I said earlier, like someone like pound could easily mistake that for, you know, something like a, a, another version of his imagism but if you're someone if you're someone who's familiar with Marx I think you there are just certain cues that are inescapable and and op in that point to a, a Marxist critique of the world and some I think you know some critics would in, would argue he's trying to engage in, in the world dialectically too and to some extent yeah yeah I mean it's funny because you know uh, well, you know, I think Oppen is more in line, and and the the objectivists as a whole are more in line with the kind of proletarian poets that I mentioned, you know, before. Even though, I mean, Oppen himself kind of explicitly rejected that stuff, um, as he called it, communist verse in a in a kind of pejorative way. Um, but I think that speaks to more of like his own, you know, anxiety. Um, about lying to himself about what the poem can do you know he he you know in that in that statement uh where he says you know if you're gonna go do something that's effective you go do it you don't uh try to convince yourself that writing is going to get anything done um so i feel like even though in a you know reading him as a marxist um you can kind of tell that he's struggling with his own sort of ability to um, both make something that is, you know, objectively perfect, like Ben Zukowski's phrase, uh, but also, you know, sort of almost fight this desire to write more, uh, more proletarian verse or something like that. Um, like Edwin Rawl for Herman Spector or someone like that. Um, uh, and I think you see it when you, you know, close read one of his poems, um, even down to, you know, a lot, a lot of what I love about Oppen is, you know, his like ability to use punctuation. Um, the, that the M dashes that appear um, all throughout a discrete series and through his poems more generally um, seem to sort of dramatize this kind of rupture or like this kind of tension that he's thinking about um, that, 
you know, like the M dash both combines and, you know, um, that destroys the, the, the relationship between, you know, individual words, um, uh, and that sort of re- reading, you know, often for, um, uh, the punctuation or for, you know, the function words like, you know, two and four and prepositions and thing like that. Um, it makes, I guess what I'm trying to say is where, where pound was focused on the kind of images and the, the way he represents reality. I think another way to look at it is to read for the punctuation, you know, and the moments where that image is broken um, and, and replaced by something else, you know, in the line on the page um, and is set into a certain number of kind of paratactical relationships with one another um, uh, that tend to, to undo the, the relationships that we've been, you know, conditioned to, to understand or to see, um, in, in poems, but also in, in the representations of reality that we, you know, experience, you know, every day. Um, so that's, that's one thing I've been thinking about a lot with his stuff. Yeah. And that reminds me like of what Ruth Jennison says about, um, Oppen in relation to Pound is that whereas Pound and the images could be described as, you know, taking pictures of the world to a certain extent, uh, Oppen was doing moving pictures and engaging in that kind yeah. of dialectical work. And I guess, like, the, this might be a moment too to pivot to, like, there's a broader interest right now, if, if well, at least it seems to me, in, like, you know, like the red modernism. Of, yeah, to engage in that, and it feels a lot. Feels to me like a lot of that work is engage engaging with the that thirties moment with an eye towards the present in some really interesting ways. Do you do you am I do you feel that way too? Do you are were you doing that in your piece with viewpoints? Yeah, I mean, so I became friends with Mark Stephen through writing that piece. Actually, um, uh, so. Yeah, a lot like we 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 share a lot of those, you know, kind of interests. Um uh the thing that I think Mark is, you know, kind of doing really well is sort of like what um you know, I just mentioned by 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 connecting those political moments, you know, of the 30s um and the depression and you know, uh you know, post um like interwar and post like bolshevik uh russia and whatnot um and connecting that not to just the sort of content of the poems which i feel like is a major sort of pitfall um or not pitfall but 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 a limitation of a lot of um you know critics and philosophers who talk about you know the communism and poetry but like down to the kind of close reading work um where the political tensions are reproduced at the level of form um, uh, and how, you know, someone like Oppen, who is, you know, uh, not only trying to use the sort of ephemera of language to create new relationships, but is also doing so in a way that is, you know, consciously you know hearkening back to or not hearkening back but 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 in dialogue 
with, you know, um, like innovations in film and whatnot and those sort of, you know, dialectical relationships too. Um, but but were, were you asking more or less about, um, you know, Stephen and his take on the politics, if we have like the same take or if we're like doing the same thing methodologically? No, I guess more generally, I was maybe not, those, I, I guess it's not a method, methodological question so much as like, it seems like this, some of this, a lot of this poetry criticism that's coming out is, is talking about the past as a way to maybe talk about the present, if that makes sense. Oh, yes. Yeah, totally. I mean, so that, that's not explicit in Stephen's work, but we've talked about it and I think we, we both agree. Um, and it's a huge part of what I want to do um, with my diss and like, you know, generally, um, which I haven't started writing yet, but I'm sort of playing more seriously with ideas now, is to sort of look at, you know, uh, or, or, or advance the the hypothesis that, you know, these the contemporary conditions for artistic production are sort of in dialogue in really important ways with those of the 20s and 30s um, on the level of like, you know, wealth inequality is like, you know, at the same level of, you know, 20s America, the, the 2008 crash and the Great Depression, you know, have been compared like a billion times. Um, but I feel like most importantly, the, you know, rise of fascist movements across the country and the world, um, uh, they themselves kind of harken back to the, the reactionary forces of the modernist era um, and sort of looking at the poetry that responds to those movements um, uh, back then in the 20s and 30s, um, I feel like, like it's a continuous struggle uh, with, with what people are doing now. And I feel like things like uh, you know, even Paint Bucket um, and, and your archive project and whatnot um, are like very, very consciously looking towards uh, you know, that era for, um, uh, for clarity and help and like seeing how to deal with it on like both, you know, like a political action level and also, you know, on level of aesthetics. Yeah, that is definitely the goal for us, I think. But I, let me ask you this too, like what other like scholarly work would you say right now is, is trying to do this work besides like you and like uh, red modernism? Sure. So that's to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. So, so I feel like um, Chris Nealon's book, um, "The Matter of Capital," um, really deals with that well. Um, uh, uh, Daniel Hartley is a scholar who has a book called uh, "The Politics of Style Towards a Marxist Poetics," um, which is really cool. Um, hold on, let me just pull something up real quick so I don't. Um, yeah, so so uh, so Hartley's book, um, which either just came out or is coming out uh, very soon, um, talks about this thing called the poetic shaping, um, which. Uh, he says uh, it takes the kind of raw material of a situation, like its words, phrases, jargons, um, and and kind of extra literary styles like diaries, newspapers, etc., 
um, kind of sculpts them into an artistic totality uh, that transforms the political valence of the ideological content. Um, uh, and basically what, what I take that to mean um, is this sort of is sort of along the lines of what Oppen is doing, where you kind of take these little snippets um, of, you know, uh, a material suffering um, or even like small comforts that that people have taken, you know, in in the middle of the depression, um, and you kind of force them together um, in a sort of, you know, artistic motion um, that transforms what, you know, say the act is a guy staring at um, a preview for a movie because he can't afford to get into it. Um, uh, and that's how he spends his day um, uh, because he can't afford to actually participate in the kind of public, you know, ceremony of watching a film. Um, and when you put that into the poem via this process, you know, of shaping, um, it transforms uh, what that uh, moment of like, you know, kind of uh, small comfort or desperation or whatever means um, for maybe that person in that situation and can put it into new relationships with um, language and uh, with other sets of images and whatnot. Um, to 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 kind of radicalize that image um, and therefore like radicalize the person who's you know reading it if they're reading it with the right mindset. Right. Is there, so, is there any any other ones you su you'd suggest along those lines? Um, let me think real quick. So, um, Roberta Schwartz is really cool. Um, uh, Julian Murphy. Is also cool. He's one of the um, co-editors of uh, the Communism and Poetry uh, book that that um, is coming out uh, in is it, like again, it either just came out or it's coming out in like you know September. Um, uh, Juliana Spars' last book, I think, is really cool. Um, a Du Bois Telegram, um, which uh i'm I'm not sure if you've read it or have 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 looked at it yeah I've read some of it what What did you think about it um like I think it's really good for like especially if you're listening to this podcast and you're not quite like you just know like generally that like the poetry foundation and all these kind of institutions have had this sort of long history of sh or like the CIA or Iowa writers workshop thing. Like if you're just like vaguely aware of the outlines of that, like that's a really good book to read to get a lot more of the details and to get like, you know, like the, the current definitive account I'd say on what, what's going on with all that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't know a bunch of stuff, you know, like uh, it, it was very useful to me as, a sort of compendium of factoids about how fucked up everything is. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't 100% sure of how the book kind of cohered as a whole. Um, uh, 
Uh, it seemed to kind of have less to do with Du Bois than I expected from the title. It was sort of just like an emblem that then, you know, a bunch of other things kind of grew out of. Um, I think her, and I think I talked about this in the group chat with Jordan Davis, and he did not agree with me, but um, her her idea of, of, uh, of autonomous art, um, I thought she, she took a really interesting perspective on that. Um, one that like sort of broke with uh, both the kind of common sense, you know, notion of um, artistic autonomy, which is like, uh, are you being compelled to write something by the government, um, uh, or are you um, uh, being compelled to write something by your political commitments, or you know, in in the case of um, you know, Oppen is. Are, like are the poems that you're writing um, that you can't get published in uh, the Daily Worker because they're not political enough? Uh, is that you know somehow uh, n like now autonomous art because it seems to obscure its politics? Um, and she sort of took that common sense notion um, and kind of reframed it uh, along the lines of government corporate kind of interference on like a literal level not just like whether you uh wrote a poem that was explicitly communist or god forbid capitalist um in its leanings uh and sort of uh whether or not the production of that piece of literature was you know sponsored by or funded by um you know, government interests or state-sponsored, you know, whatever, like Poetry Foundation or, uh, you know, all those sort of smaller magazines that were funded by the CIA and whatnot. Yeah, and this might be a good time, too, since you mentioned it again, to go back to something you talked about in the Viewpoints article about Oppen, which was sort of like what what makes a communist poem. And, you know, having gone through a lot of the New Masses archive, they have, they have, I'd say they have a lot of guidelines as to what kind of poetry they'd like to see. And, you know, like what I think what's interesting now to think about is, you know, what, like what kind of poetry we want to see, especially with how it engages with Marxism, you know, you know, you have, I guess, sort of, you know, like what Kenneth Fearing would do, or you, and you have yeah. what George Oppen would do, not these aren't like an opposition. I like both of them, but right. I think there's just different ways of writing. And I guess what I'm asking is, you know, how, like, how do you see that in the, in the present? Right. Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> if I had asked that question to myself, I would have had that same reaction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I've just been really sad about it all lately. So um, that's that's where the sigh is coming from. Um, but I guess, I mean, as the my viewpoint article sort of talked about, I was, um, you know, sort of came down against the stringency of the Communist Party regarding, uh, you know, artistic like experimentation and, and and the sort of content that they were looking for, um, but now looking at what is being published, I kind of agree with them. <laughs> I feel like um, uh, so much of what's being written now is like so devoid of any sort of political content or even 
sort of to to kind of mention in passing, you know, like a like a speculative um, kind of thrust to it. Um, uh, so much of it seems uh, just really kind of politically complacent and kind of dead inside. Um, but I mean, I guess you know to go back to sort of you know what Paint Bucket is doing and um, what Protean is doing. Um, those are sort of the places that I kind of look to for uh, what I want poems to do. Uh, and I think of um, uh, a labor seller's poem. I'm not sure of their name. Um, uh, that that starts out, that's sort of uh, kind of represented to me this sort of uh, fusion of both the kind of politically committed kind of a Kenneth Fearing thing along with the sort of um, uh, kind of gentler uh, kind of Oppen-esque kind of stuff where, you know, the first kind of eight lines are sort of like expressions of this, you know, a desire to to rest and just kind of uh, the the exhaustion of doing labor all day. And then it kind of, you know, ends in that last line with, you know, uh, we can't let the landlords live. Um, and, and that's where the fearing stuff kind of comes in for me, obviously. Uh, and so that, that poem, I think, was a really, really good example of what I sort of want poetry to be doing. Um, uh, and I struggle to, in my own stuff, I struggle to uh, have the confidence to be that explicit. Um, so I really kind of admired that, that piece as like, um, a way to, you know, where you don't have to go all the way, you know, towards like, uh, like McKay style, you know, if we must die, uh, but, but also, um, uh, preserving that ultimate kind of, um, a compulsion towards, you know, a kind of overthrow and, you know, forms of violence that will eventually lead to a better world. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say you, you, you definitely do the same in your poems. You know, there's, there's Maoist, there's, in, in your amp poem, it ends with, um, what is the people, a people's guide to insurrection? I, what was it? Oh, yeah. Um, a protracted people's war for dummies, I think was the line. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, the Uber, the Uber driver looking in their glove box for uh, a, a <laughs> the the protracted people's war guide. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and and that was like, you know, kind of funny to write on the page. Um, uh, but I feel like. So much of what I feel myself kind of like conditioned to writing is like um, this kind of uh, like elliptical kind of stuff where I'm always sort of like running around in circles around the 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 point, and I feel like so much of the, you know, good or decent stuff that I've written has come from this, like, kind of nerve ending uh, kind of impulse um, towards just, like, just say you want to kill the landlords. Like, that's that's a poem. It doesn't have to, 
kind of skirt around all these things. Um, or, you know, if it does, they're, they're, you, you can't totally abandon this, like, very kind of visceral need to, um, to write down the kind of the rebellion that you want to see. Uh, because if you're not saying that, at least sometimes, um, then any uh, kind of statement or, or belief towards the, you know, like a, by the liberating power of the poem just seems to be like fluff. Um, I remember there was some tweet that was going around. I was like, all poems are like against the status quo or something kind of silly like that. And that since I've become more aware of the divide between the kind of liberal poetry, you know, establishment or whatever, and like what, what you and I and, and, and all of our, you know, friends, uh, you know, and comrades are doing, um, uh, it just has, has become so absurd to me, um, to, to kind of like resist that impulse towards, um, just kind of coming out with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I do know what, what you mean. And I think something that, like, I think you do a lot of, like, again, like what Oppen would do with respect to, like, describing the surroundings and setting the scene of uh, the, the capitalist hell world we currently live in. Like, you have a poem in Protean that, starts with you know describing you know like like a trip down the i-95 essentially from boston yeah yeah um hold on i forgot my own poem so let me just look at that one real quick that happens to me all the time <laughs> it's like as soon as i write it it just goes fucking right out the door yeah that's that is the best thing about poetry <laughs> yeah right at least the bad ones don't stick yeah, oh, oh, right. So this poem. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I wrote this one, right. <laughs> yeah, so this one was was weird because it started out sort of like uh, I wanted to write a poem about uh, my grandpa who died um, uh, last year. Uh, and somehow over the course of this writing process, um, uh, it became this sort of more expansive um, kind of journey from, you know, uh, the bowels of, you know, Cambridge, uh, you know, Massachusetts to uh, this sort of small kind of moment that I had with my grandpa before he died. Um, and like, uh, yeah, I feel like this one does a pretty okay job of like, uh, sort of making that that kind of uh, like paratactical move of like there's always in these kind of small moments of like hey I'm you know kind of cleaning my grandpa's eyeglasses and he's you know a dying of emphysema uh, while I'm looking at him and like the the political background to that and the moments that inform uh uh those kind of smaller experiences like you know you're driving uh uh to see a family member and you're constantly aware of you know police on the highway um uh and like 
you know, if there are Maoists or anarchists that are like, you know, having like a food drive, you know, in Harvard Square or something. Uh, and like the the kind of class struggle nature of it and the presence of, you know, like a police state um, uh, kind of seep into the kind of private moments that you think that you can have that are away from those political, uh, you know, realities. Um, and that, you know, uh, there are kind of always these like gigantic kind of social forces at play. Uh, and, and also in your consciousness, even when you're doing things that seem at least to like a bourgeois kind of mind to be like private and away from any sort of public sphere where politics can get done. And not that, uh, shaving my grandpa is doing politics. Uh, but that might be a funny line in a poem. Um, uh, but like that, you just can't get away from it at any point. And that like, uh, the kind of realizations that you have in those very tiny, you know, experiences are, you know, in dialectical relationship to, you know, possibly getting arrested for, you know, whatever, um, or, or, you know, the, you know, the Maoists getting in trouble for, you know, kind of, um, you know, giving food on, you know, company property or something like that. Um, and these things are always, uh, kind of talking to one another. One's, one of them is always trying to squish the other one. Uh, yeah. And just to be clear, a lot of the images you've just been talking about, I think are images from some of your poems in Protean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of, uh, like moon rose, the one that, uh, was published in the three that were published. Um, uh, in Protean. Yeah. <laughs> Protean magazine. Yep. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I was gonna, no, you're good. I was going <laughs> to say, um, you know, you, you said you're like the, you did the, one of the poems you described as being like expansive. And I would say like, you know, the, the scope of your poems is often expansive, but you know, you do, I think you take a lot from Oppen and, your poems are quite sparse, but cover a lot of ground. And I think one of the ways you do that as, and we've talked about this um, a couple of times is you do it with like um, parataxis. And I was wondering if you could maybe like tell the folks at home, you know, what, <laughs> what is parataxis and how it can be used towards like a Marxist ends. Sure. Totally. So um, I got uh, my thoughts about parataxis from the Zukowski era by Jenison. Um, Paratactic is basically um, the stacking of um, clauses in a sentence uh, without putting them in a hierarchical relationship to one another. Um, uh, and uh, even if it breaks, you know, um, formal grammar, you know, moves or whatever. Um, and uh, there's lots of commas in my poems because of that. Um, uh, and uh, basically, uh, what Jenison is arguing um, when she's talking about Zukovsky um, is that the uh, paratactical form of his poetry and also of Oppen's poetry, uh, because it puts things in that, you know, kind of horizontal relationship to one another. Um, it allows you to experience the poem or it allows you to write the poem um, 
uh, in a way that imagines the kind of uh, relationships that um, would kind of occur, I guess, in in, in a communist um, a utopia or something like that. Um, uh, and that the 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 kind of simultaneous raising up of some parts of speech and the 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 kind of tearing down of others um, mimics the movement of um, you know like a revolutionary overthrow of the bourgeoisie and you know a raising up of the proletariat um, uh, and so I really like that idea um, I think that it's sort of beautiful in a way and i think it's very useful as um a practice of writing um even if it's just to kind of um draft something using parataxis or something because you have these kind of ideologically conditioned uh ways of privileging certain parts of a piece of writing and and deprivileging de others and even just um looking at all of these you know clauses and and you know and phrases and whatnot um in a sort of kind of horizontal way um can help you uh reimagine you know the writing of the poem um in cool ways but on the other hand uh parataxis is a like historically specific kind of uh uh a device that poets have used since, you know, at least Whitman in American poetry. Um, and so to make the claim that there's some kind of like inherent link between parataxis and, you know, radical politics um, doesn't seem to hold up. I'm, I don't think that's what Jenison is saying. I think she's more talking about it, how, you know, um, it's being specifically used in um, A, which is um, the... The long Zukowski poem. Yeah, the like it's like eight hundred pages. Yeah, serialized uh, over a span of several decades. Yeah, um, and so I mean, like someone like Whitman clearly is not, um, you know, like a communist revolutionary. Uh, you know, uh, he's like an emblem of like American liberalism and utopianism and whatnot. Uh, so I don't want to make the case that you know uh, formal features have a political program that's kind of like built into them uh but rather they can be put to use in certain ways and some uh uh tend to be more useful for some you know sets of politics uh, more than others yeah and i think this gets at what we were talking about earlier with respect to like not necessarily bringing the marxism into the poems but trying to make the poems marxist yeah yeah definitely <sighs> So much of it seems to me to have to do with the way that, you know, poets choose to use these kind of formal structures. Um, uh, because when we experience the kind of things that lead us to become, you know, Marxist, um, uh, it's not it's not the theoretical stuff though that's you know integral to, to to kind of figuring out what the fuck is going on but like the the stuff that you know made me you know sort of realize things and i know like a lot of other poets have this experience too uh is like the the, the combination or or disjunction of certain events 
uh, you know, in your own life when you see stuff um, that just doesn't kind of add up. And so putting them in that kind of new relationship to to one another can be very jarring. Um, and if you can reproduce that in a poem, uh, it might actually have some kind of social use uh, beyond what the content is trying to to to, to propose. Yeah, and, and I, again, I think this uh, dovetails nicely with what you were talking about earlier earlier with Oppen. Yeah, and I and I guess this goes to the broader point I was asking about. Like, and I'm answering my own question here, but it, you know, the a lot of this scholarship is is really, I think although it's about past poetic movements, like the objectivists, it it is trying to talk about the present in some really interesting ways. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that Mark is currently, Mark Stephen is currently working on um, uh, a project that deals with contemporary criticism uh, and is sort of like a polemical, uh, you know, essay um, that's, sort of like attacking the people who don't try to uh look at these you know historical moments as you know really really informing what's going on right now um and who try to use the idea of periodization to uh compartmentalize these movements and sort of look at them under a microscope um in a way that assumes a kind of distance um, and uh, sort of appeal to like you know rational things rather than uh, kind of mining them uh, for you know what what work you know aesthetically and what work politically um, uh, and trying to to kind of you know shape that stuff poetically in your criticism and in in, in poetry too. Mm, well, I'm gonna well to use some. Foucault language here you know that's there's a lot of there's a lot of continuities you could say between certain past poetic movements in the present but I guess and I guess that's a lot of my interest in poetry from the 30s and 60s etc is seeing the evolution of that stuff and how it's linked to the present whether these critics who love periodization will admit it or not yeah yeah I mean um and like to you, you mentioned Foucault, um, and oh god, <laughs> um, I feel like I'm I'm not gonna give a hot take on Foucault, um, but but I feel like so much of uh, what these exact critics have like taken from you know Foucault is. Uh, is kind of reduced to like an anti-dialectical uh, kind of way of reading that doesn't see, you know, history as a continuous, you know, procession of class struggle. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, because power is so uh, diffuse or something like that, that uh, um, it's, it's compartmentalizable. Not, not that you can, uh, kind of contain whatever power he's talking about, but that the 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 responsibility of the uh, the critic is to sort of focus on those kind of micro level things, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I know what you're talking about. It's the it's the specialization that is off so often a conduit for liberalism in the academy. 
Yeah, yeah, the the kind of specialization, but also the compulsion to being like you know to 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 working across disciplines, uh, and those two movements in the, like at the same time uh, seem to create like uh, like a bunch of tiny and ultimately politically useless connections, rather than trying to go for uh, something that takes you know that 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 could actually speak you know across you know like an English grad program and, uh, you know, some sort of STEM program, um, you know, in a way that encourages like, you know, solidarity and not just like, uh, kind of momentary connections, but ultimately like nothing really. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And that gets back to the earlier joke I made about like fucking innovation studies or progress studies or whatever. It's just, it the the overall ambition is is quite limited and deliberately so i'd say yeah and it kind of guts the um the very kind of uh like modes of interrogation that something like you know an english program or like a i guess a philosophy program not in america or the uk um would would that 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 depends upon in order to exist you know what i mean it's like uh uh the 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 procedure of combining these things across disciplines uh you know actually kind of uh reasserts you know like a dominant assumption yeah you can't you can't have yeah like you can't have interdisciplinary studies without first having disciplines right exactly yeah yeah, so I think it also leads a lot of uh, like literary scholars to kind of abandon the stuff that they're good at and go to the things that they're not good at. Um, uh, like a lot of stuff, you know, on literature and science just completely abandons the kind of literary questions that inform it and you know give it energy um, in order to try to sound like a scientist or something. And that just doesn't seem to make any sense. To me. Yeah, I've long thought that rather than trying to get supervision from scientists, we should be trying to supervise the scientists. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a it's like a truism by now. Uh, you know, after you know, we dropped the bomb. Yeah, that's kind of it. Really, can't get much more definitive than the events of World War II. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, down to you know, the Nazis looking to, like, American race science to come up with their, you know, bullshit. Uh, uh, you know, science is, is certainly not um, a category that is free from, you know, complicity and things. In fact, it's, like, a motivating thing in a lot of it. Um, yeah, exactly. And, like, you know, because that was never addressed, we have race science coming back right now. Yeah, for sure. Um and I guess uh, something too that you know that I like to to go on about endlessly is you know you can't have climate change without science, but you know that's not going to be addressed. Wait, what do you mean by that? I mean like the 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 role that science plays in global capitalism has you know been a key part in the rise of you know fought the fossil fuels and the cars we all drive. You know, science has been oh oh sure yeah yeah it's, <laughs> sorry it's a one of my yeah, something I love to bring up in con. But yeah, I, I, as you can tell, I'm a riot at dinner parties. <laughs> me too. Me too. Um, 
I don't know. It just seems like, like there's a pervasive kind of hopelessness that just allows these kind of fucked up uh, things like, you know, science being both like a driving factor of climate change and also being the thing that people appeal to when they say that we have to stop it. Um, uh, I, I cannot imagine what that's going to lead to as far as, you know, just in, in, in terms of just the contradiction that it leads to. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you could see this playing out in a previously, like, with the Dust Bowl in the 30s. But, um, you know, why learn anything from history when you can just keep studying <laughs> progress? Right, exactly. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, you know, many, many people have said this before. Uh, but to think of it as an impending thing is just, like, so fucked up to me. Uh yeah, well, I mean, that's and that's that's how we end up with ecofascism too. Yeah, which yeah. you know already has a body count. The like, just the massive scale of what is confronting us in terms of both you know climate change, but also like you know you know ecofascism and all the the kind of shades of fascism that that have arisen. It's like. It's shocking to me that we're all, and I mean by we, I mean like people in the academy who, you know, almost all of whom are at least afraid of climate change, you know, if not, uh, you know, taking fascism seriously as a threat, um, are not like freaking the fuck out, like violently. Yeah, it's it's a very frustrating situation to i don't know just it's just a very frustrating situation to be in and i guess i was going to try and pivot it to like i guess the potential optimism of something like speculative poetics maybe not optimism is the wrong word but i guess trying to pivot away from despair at least yeah yeah for sure so um let me just look quickly because i have the i have margaret's essay up um, yeah, we're gonna. We, I I'd mentioned wanting to talk about the Margaret Rhonda essay that was on something or other dot edu. Yeah, it was on it was on the Post Forty Five website at, at Yale. Uh, the social forms of speculative poetics by Margaret Rhonda. Yeah, that sounds right. I guess I just like a move she made at the end of it where she sort of says says being subjunctive rather than subjective. I kind of feel like that's a way around some of the I feel like a lot of the liberalism in poems now is mediate in poetry now is tends to come through via um, the lyric like lyric poetry and I'm not saying that lyric poetry is bad per se but I'm saying that um, yeah uh, <laughs> yeah I just lyric poetry is bad yeah well I mean we could do some hot takes for sure but I guess more I'm just saying like there's a certain way you can speculate, especially in poetry, because one of the things I dislike about speculative fiction is that it is um, fi fiction. It's narr narrative, and it feels like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it feels like poetry has has a real opportunity to engage in that speculative work, as they say, in some really interesting ways. And you know, I I think a lot of poets are already doing that. Not to say no one's doing it, because people are doing it. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, no, for sure. This is a thing that I get into fights with my roommate about all the time uh, because <laughs> <laughs> she she's also a PhD student uh, and she does novels and I you know I do poetry uh, and I like hate plot and like narrative stuff. Um, not all the time, but like a lot of the time, um, it's just like it seems to be such a conduit for ideology uh to me where like um uh you know more lyric kind of modes um seem to me to have a lot more potential even though at present they're not you know always being used in the way um that that i think would would uh yeah that's a good way of putting it i'm kind of more saying that as it is lyric the lyric now is not necessarily being used for good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the cool things about Rhonda's, you know, essay is that it sort of gives a first um, go at like what could lyric poetry do, um, and I feel like her. I forget if she cites Adorno or not in this, uh, but it 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 made me think of you know Adorno's. Um, uh, kind of proposition that the I think it's in poetry, uh, a lyric poetry in society, um, where he sort of says that like poetry is um, the process of imagining otherwise, um, and like this seems to be like very much in the tradition of of what Adorno uh, was thinking, especially you know. Citing Wendy Trevino, um, who, who, um, future guest, hopefully. Yes. Oh, that would be so cool. She's great. Um, uh, but, but, but the kind of speculative, uh, power to like think about, um, new forms of social relationships and new worlds. And, uh, uh, because I think about the, the problem that Marx was in. Uh, you know, in the 19th century and like having all these people imagining, you know, uh, utopias. Um, and he's just like, no, like, fuck you. You can't just keep like imagining uh, what what it's going to be like. Um, you have to kind of understand what the political economy is now uh, and and critique it in order to even like start to try to figure out what um, where we're going to go. I feel like maybe this is a hot take or not. I don't know, but we're in kind of the opposite position now where like, there's so little kind of speculation, um, uh, and so much description, um, and sort of cataloging of experience, um, which can be beautiful and really important. But, you know, I feel like what, what Rhonda is, is, you know, is talking about, um, uh, rewriting, she says, uh, it doesn't have page numbers, but in section five, uh, future thinking of, of the essay, she says, rewriting the, the, the determinations of the present as a terrain of ongoing struggle uh, in relation to Chris Nealon's poem. Um, and I feel like that's sort of what, that's like a thesis statement, sort of, for what I feel like poetry should be doing. Um, is to like do so, sort of what I said about about Daniel Hartley's book about um, the poetic shaping um, and that 
the idea of you know compiling things and then transforming their political valence. Um, Rhonda seems to be talking about doing that um, in the context of you know class struggle and and um, rewriting the present um, as a thing that is both sort of you know oriented towards you know some sort of imagined future, but also the imaginative and and kind of speculation um, uh, is going on um in terms of the present too so it's not just sort of what marx was complaining about these utopian kind of things were being written about um uh without any like attention to the present i feel like um you know what Rhonda is saying is that you know part of uh what it means to have a future is to rewrite you know uh, the present in terms of struggle in terms of class struggle and and whatnot um uh but while maintaining a kind of open-endedness and not uh, sort of foreclosing it in a deterministic kind of way. Yeah, and I, I, and I mean, that's one of Marx's critiques of utopia is to how, like, totalizing the worldview is of various socialist utopians in the 19th century. I think a good, well, maybe not an interest, a good book about this, this sort of utopian moment he was living through was um, John Trush's Romantic Machines. Um, it kind of got into the the French scene uh, regarding a lot. Yeah. And I guess like you bring up the sort of, we're living in the opposite moment of Marx where there's not a lot of imagining about like the future or utopia. And I think that um, like, that's, that's kind of like Jameson's argument. And I feel like one of the things he does well that I quite like, and I think could go nicely with, uh, Margaret Rhonda, maybe she does it in the essay, and that's why I'm thinking of it. But you know, uh, Jameson cites uh, Ernst Bloch and his idea of like utopian influence uh, impulses, utopian impulses, which is to say, rather than the 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 sort of grand plan of past utopians um, having sort of like I think something interesting that you know this sort of work could do would be to think about like maybe studs her Kel style, you know, what, what do people actually want in the future type work and engaging in that kind of speculation rather than a, a totalized rather, rather than the, the grand utopias of the past. Yeah. I mean, no, I think that's, that's a really interesting um, point in reading of, you know, of Rhonda and Jameson. Um, and I think like, so I've had this kind of idea for, um, a poem kind of floating around in my head for a while where um, I just kind of go up to people and ask them that question that you just asked and then sort of make a poem out of it. Um, Yeah, that'd be a cool poem. You should do that. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm going to. And just sort of um, take the just literal wishes of people that they want to improve their life, um, sort of like a kind of like a pseudo mass line type of thing. Um, uh, and kind of inserted in a very literal uh, uh, and explicit way into like a poetic form, because like that seems to kind of represent exactly what uh, we, we've been talking about that we want, you know, poetry to do is to like, you know, express, um, uh, you know, the 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 utopian speculative will of like people who are suffering 
Um, and whether that's through, you know, a negation in the kind of way that Rhonda puts it, um, uh, a speculation by negation is her phrase, um, by saying something that they, you know, don't want or want to go away or, or would want to cease in some way, um, or, you know, whether it's more of like a positive wish or a positive expression in some way, um, I feel like um, that would be kind of like a cool and kind of important thing to to start to um, to intersperse in our poetries. Yeah, I guess um, like with respect to, I guess I'm trying to think how to put this. Um, like, um, so I think one of the interest, one of the reasons I'm interested in having like this sort of conversation is like I talked to trend especially a lot but this is something that's loomed over several of the conversations i've had on this podcast is it really does feel like we're in a moment where sort of a new aesthetic feels very necessary and like i think sometimes people are like oh what's the point of this sort of theoretical abstract work and for me right now it feels like you know there needs to be a a sort of um engagement with you know what's worked in the past and what's working right now in our present and trying to, you know, write some poems that can address those sort of things in some new, in some, maybe not new ways, but in some ways that are, I guess, different from, you know, the, perhaps the irony that's dominant right now. Yeah. What, so, sorry, this is going to be a terrible question, but what, what do you mean by irony right now? Oh, uh, well, it's, that's more of an online thing. I think in poetics and poetry right now, that's it, that sort of irony poisoning hasn't, really seeped in unless you're reading certain edgy online publications like you know mm -hmm. the works um, margaret ronda sites i would say <laughs> don't really engage in that but which is why i think maybe one reason we could read them but i guess it does feel like there's there's sort of a a need for something different right now yeah totally i mean like i feel like just in insofar as the you know the example of the recent sort of public critiques um, of not only Poetry Foundation, but also of the poets who, you know, have received money from them um, and not that they shouldn't take the money, but that they should acknowledge that that money uh, comes from kind of devious uh, uh, place and has blood on it. Um, I feel like that moment was really telling for uh, what the limits of those poets' um, work might be. Like, that seemed to be uh, like a poetic moment, even though it was kind of sad to see it you know, happen, that it revealed something about what their work can't do. Um, and it seems like it can't uh, turn back on itself, you know, in a way that um uh is you know kind of a self-critical or that has any aspirations towards you know anything other than you know individual kind of you know success in in curating you know an artistic style or something like that but i just don't feel like that's going to cut it anymore i feel like so many people have and you know maybe i'm just in a very kind of um you know, sheltered part of, you know, the, the internet where we're all just pissed off at this stuff all the time. 
but it feels like something's got to give and that some sort of radical aesthetic break um, or like repurposing or something is going to, to happen because of the amount of frustration that we have both with the poet's work and those poets, um, you know, behavior and, and, and like personal political commitments or lack thereof. Well, you used the word curation, which triggered a fun thought in my head is that, which is that, you know, the curation in those poems perhaps mirrors the curation of these various institutions. But <laughs> I guess, uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, let me look for one sec. Yeah, no worries. Just scrolling through the article to see if there is any sort of final thing that I wanted to... Yeah, this was like the most professional-sounding podcast I've ever done because we, we, I managed to dovetail most of the conversations we had. Well, is dovetail the right word here? I don't think so. I managed to to uh, circle back to most of the earlier conversations we had in, kind of in, a, in a way that makes them feel final. <laughs> cool. That's great. I mean, I, I uh, was afraid of, you know, rambling or just saying like random shit that had nothing to do with what you were asking, oh. so... No, it doesn't. I mean, even if you did and you did and it would like like it, like it even matters. It's a podcast. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I just feel like the stakes of podcasting are, are quite low. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But which makes it know. fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I guess the last thing that I wanted to say about, you know, our like, you know, earlier conversation about, you know, open and writing and not writing to do um um to actually do politics um the the idea of integrating um what you do when you're not writing like what 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 you do uh when you've concluded that writing won't be enough um i feel like that is also in a dialectical relationship too. And that like, it's not just writing one day and then not writing uh, to go um, be in a black block. But when time has passed or enough time has passed and, and, and George Oppen actually does this, he goes back uh, to, and, and sort of references the time where he was silent poetically. Um, and like, uh, he he reintegrates or reincorporates those moments where he was doing the poetry in the world by doing politics uh, back into the poem again, and so this this kind of relationship is always kind of uh, re uh, resynthesizing or uh, re recombining into new things. So I don't feel like um, the the lesson from Oppen is that. Uh, we stop writing to do politics and that's final but it's that like you can't one you can't pretend that writing is doing politics uh but two uh like eventually the politics that you did can inform your poems and actually make them you know more socially conscious and more revolutionary um than they you know could have been previously as if uh you know the actions that you take do actually inform uh what what comes out of you poetically and i think that's a really cool like lesson that you can get from oppen's work in life 